What a great privilege it is to be a child of God, to be a part of the Lord's building, the Lord's body, to be one of His believers. I cannot tell you how much delight and encouragement I have derived from the study of the book of Ephesians. This is a wonderful book, an encouraging book, and a book that presents to us how great of a privilege we enjoy by being children of God. Let me review with you for just a moment, chapters 1 through 3, discuss the blessings provided by God and all that is involved with it. When you and I think about what we have been given, how much we have been blessed, chapters 1 through 3 describes in such wonderful way those blessings. In chapters 4 through 6, there is the behavior of those who are blessed. When we think about blessings, many folks like the reward, but rarely do they embrace the responsibilities that come with it. You and I like blessings, but sometimes we don't think about what we are to do with those blessings, how we are supposed to handle them. Many of us who are in this country, even in this congregation, have been blessed financially. With those blessings comes responsibilities. As Paul would tell Timothy, charge those who are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, those of us who are blessed have some obligations that go with it. Being blessed spiritually have some obligations that go with that as well. And this morning, I want us to discuss chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we will look at the subject of unity real unity as God has provided. We're going to look at three things as we go through an expository lesson. Verses 1 and 2, we will look at the walk. Verse 3, we will look at the work. And then finally in verses 4 through 6, we will look at the way. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love. Now I want you to notice, first of all, this statement, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The words that Paul uses here begins with I. He's drawing attention to himself and to the obligations, the responsibilities that he has. He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, why would he constantly remind them of the fact that he's a prisoner? He's in Rome. He's in a Roman prison. It is for his stance for what is right. In fact, you go back to chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, 
The reason why Paul is in prison is because he stood for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. You can go back to Acts chapter 20 and find that that is the case, or Acts 21. He says, I beseech you. Now, we don't use the word beseech in our language much today. It means to urge, to plead, to encourage. In fact, it's in the original language in the present tense, which means it's something that a person is continually doing. It would be comparable to our saying, I am begging you. Maybe a husband is begging his wife to come back to him. Perhaps it's a parent begging their child to do their homework, to make good grades. Paul here is saying, I am beseeching you. I am begging you. I am pleading with you to walk. The word walk in the Bible is often a figure of speech to describe how we conduct our lives. The way we live. For instance, Romans 6 and verse 4, Paul would say, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The word walk there indicates how we live. Romans 13, verse 13, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. And then he goes on in verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What we find is, is that walk indicates it's a pattern of life. And even here in the book of Ephesians, Paul has used it in that sense. Chapter 2, verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He's saying, you lived like this. You walked like this. Chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 15. For you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk, live as children of light. Verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. What is Paul trying to say? When he's saying, I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you to walk. He's saying, this is the way I want you to live in life. Worthy. Worthy. If I were to ask everyone here in this audience who feels they are worthy of the Lord's sacrifice, I don't believe one hand would go up. If I were to ask how many of you think that you are worthy of the Lord, again, I don't think anyone would say, I'm worthy. But here Paul calls on us to walk or live worthy. Notice Philippians 1 and verse 27. Only let your conduct, your life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, 
that you stand fast in one spirit and in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, I want to hear that you are living up to a worthy, noble calling. Colossians 1 and verse 10, another parallel passage, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you want to be a person who's living a life worthy of being a Christian? He tells you here, make it be one that is fruitful in every good work. When you have an opportunity to do good to somebody, do it. Show your Christianity by the way you treat other people. And then he said, increasing in the knowledge of God. Take your Bible, read it every day, study and grow. In doing so, you will be walking worthy of the Lord. But then he uses a phrase that sometimes people misunderstand. He says, I beseech you therefore to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. A calling. Some people today have this idea that the Lord somehow in a mysterious way calls us to be His children. As if somehow in the middle of the night I have a dream and the dream is disturbing and the dream makes me feel uncomfortable and somehow I feel like I've got to make things right with God. Or a person has an attack of conscience. Perhaps they're doing something they ought not to do. They've been involved in something that's wrong and all of a sudden they decide, the Lord's calling me to do what's right. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is calling us to live like His Son. He is calling us to walk with His Son. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. God's not calling us to live a life that's uh, apart from Him, sinful in any way. God is calling us to live holy, sanctified lives. But then the passage that I think is perhaps the one that is most significant. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. To which He called you, By our gospel. Oh, how did God call you? Paul said he called you by our gospel. It is by his preaching that I hear the message of God. We sing the song, I can hear my Savior calling. How does he call me? He calls me through that gospel message. Then with that walk, he says, with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Here is how he explains the way he wants us to walk. Humility. That's the way we, we approach God. We don't approach God and saying, here I am like the Pharisee of Luke 18. God, you ought to be thankful you've got me. No. We approach God by saying, God, thank you that I am able, permitted, privileged to be one of your children. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That is you and I make sure that we not only hold our Lord in high esteem and we humble ourselves before him, but in this walk that he's talking about, this worthy walk, I have to be willing to humble myself before others as well. Then he says, with gentleness. You may look in your translation and it may use the word meekness. The word meekness is a rather unique word. It was used to describe, for instance, the breaking of a horse. Strength under control. That is, you have all the power, all the strength, but you channel it in a positive way. It's used in regards to relationship to others where we do not handle people roughly, but we handle them gently. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 21. Paul says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Do you want me to come and to have to be rough with you? Obviously they didn't. Paul said, you want me to come and to be gentle with you. When you and I realize there's something wrong in our life, do we want people to come and just smack us in the face and say, you're doing wrong? No, none of us like that. We want kindness. We want gentleness. As you and I walk this Christian life, he's calling on us to be lowly, humble, to be gentle, to be long-suffering. Long-suffering means we understand that other people are having difficulties and we are able to, as he goes on to say, bear with one another. We might would say put up with one another. You know, there's times when we put up with a lot of things. We even disappoint ourselves. And we put up with ourselves because we realize we're not intending to do it wrong. We make mistakes. We need to realize that same sort of attitude toward others. In Colossians 3, verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. So also you must do. He's saying that you and I have to bear with one another like God has borne with us. Second of all, this is not an easy task. I don't know how many of you realize what we have just studied. But to be kind, to be humble, to be long-suffering, and to bear with one another is tough. Especially when you consider what Paul is asking us to do. Now I want to take you to verse 3, which is the second part of this lesson. And that is the work. In verse 3 he says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word endeavoring carries with it the idea of eagerness, diligence, and an earnest effort. 
In fact, the Greek word has to carry with it, has to have within it both two things. Number one, that you really want it, the eagerness, and the effort that is put out to accomplish it. The word endeavoring is a word that is used in some other passages in the Bible. One that you will find very familiar is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The King James says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The American Standard in the New King James says, Give diligence. That's the same word here for endeavoring. The eagerness, the industry, the effort that's put out. To do what? To keep. Now, that doesn't mean that when we do this, we are originating it. We are maintaining or preserving something, causing a state to continue. So you and I are carrying out a job that has already been done for us. What is that? The unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit has provided. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. You and I have to realize that this unity was not created by us. It was created by God through His Spirit. And it didn't matter whether you were Jew or Gentile, whether you were a slave or a free, whether you were rich or whether you were poor, whether you were a man or you were a woman. This unity was created by God. Endeavoring, giving the earnestness, giving the energy to maintain this is what he is saying. In the bond of peace. If you go back to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, for he himself is our peace, who has made of one, or made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. God created it. You and I maintain that bond of peace which he created. You know, I've seen people sometimes take situations that have been created for them and mess it up. Maybe, for instance, people have had a home built for them and it's beautiful, and it's clean, and it's new. And people come in, and they treat it badly. They treat it poorly. Pretty soon the shutters are falling off, and the doors are loose, and there are holes in the wall, and there are stains everywhere because people didn't maintain it. God created this unity, this whole body. And what happens? 
Sometimes we don't treat it with the respect that it deserves. We don't give the energy, the effort, to try to maintain that unity that God has created. We are to maintain the peace. Which leads me to the third part of our lesson, the way. I want you to listen to verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. The unity brought by the Spirit is not a peace at any price. In fact, if I go to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah, I find God through Jeremiah often condemning the false prophets who were saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They were attempting to try to persuade people to accept things not from God. When you and I urge people to be unified, standing together in the body of Christ, we have to realize there are some key issues to the way that are not negotiable. I know the world is today full of pluralism that it says... It doesn't matter what you believe on any topic or any subject. You ought to be willing to accept everything. So they would say the religion that is based upon Jesus Christ and the religion that is based upon Muhammad and the religion that is based upon Buddha and the religion that comes from the Hindus all should be on one plane and just as acceptable and just as valid as another. The basis for Christian unity here are the seven ones. And very briefly, let me just touch on each of these. There's one body. That's the church. Now I know today, there are people today saying, Oh, but are you meaning to say that all these churches that we have are wrong? The fact that we have many churches is wrong. Because... Here, Scripture says there is one body. Listen to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. If there's just one body and the body is the church, there's just one church. Jesus established only one church. Matthew 16 and verse 18. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not churches. Church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. One Spirit. The Holy Spirit. If you look in the Bible, quite frequently you will see the contrast between the Spirit and spirits, plural. Listen, for instance, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and 1 John 4, 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 
You see, you have what the Spirit of God says, and you have what all these deceiving spirits say. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's only one message from the Spirit. And today, those who are proclaiming to you that this religion is okay and that religion is okay, from whence do they derive their authority? There's only one Spirit from whom we may derive our authority. One hope. Hope is a desired expectancy for the future. And the hope that you and I have is the real one. It is a living hope. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, doesn't that sound like Ephesians 1 3? Who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I have a real hope because of what Jesus did. And according to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 12, he says that at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope without God in the world. There's just one hope, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ and in the resurrection of the dead. One Lord, Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, Paul will take the subject of demons and gods and lords, and here's what he will say. Therefore, concerning the thing eating, offered, eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we live, or through whom we live. We understand there's just one Lord. It's Jesus the Christ. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul would say, For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You don't have anybody else that is your Savior. You don't have anyone else who is your Master. This is the church of Christ. It's His. It belongs to Him. One faith. The faith here that is described is not one's personal trust and confidence in God. This is the synonym for revealed truth, for the faith so to speak. How do I know that? Because if I continue on in this context, in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Till we all come to this understanding of this message about who Jesus is. And he says in verse 12, 11 and 12, that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. You see, God gave plans till we all could come to this unity of faith. Jude 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And then one baptism. As I approach the Bible, I realize there's John's baptism. I study a little bit further and I read about Holy Spirit baptism, the baptism of fire, the baptism of suffering. And a person could study all of them. But you know when you study your Bible, John's baptism, Holy Spirit baptisms, fire baptism, baptism of suffering never was for everybody. They were for individual groups of people at individual periods of time. But when you and I come to the New Testament, we find there is one baptism that is for everyone and that was to endure. Acts 2.38 Peter said that repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Let everyone of you. You see, the water baptism that he talks about here is that universal, that one baptism which everyone is to participate in. And finally, one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Romans three twenty nine says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Or is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. There's not the God of the people of Southeast Asia and the God of the people of South America and the God of the people of Africa. There is one God for all of us because he is the true God. 1 Corinthians 12:6 says, And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And it's essential that one accept and embrace these basics or else there can be no real unity. First in the list of the basic application of the principles here is the unity of the church. What does God expect from the church at Bobby Branch? He expects because he has provided Unity based upon the teachings of the truth that we all adhere to that. And that we all work together with one another, bearing with one another's difficulties, trials, tribulations, and failures so that we can all stand together upon these foundations of truth. The key to accomplishing this is proper attitudes and proper teaching. We all have to have the right attitude. We all have to be lowly. We all have to be the kind of people that are gentle, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. And you can enjoy the same faithful fellowship with God and with the other Christians. This morning, if you want to become a Christian, everything is prepared for you. There's water in the baptistry. There's clothing for you to wear. What it is waiting upon is your decision. Will I become a child of God? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, why don't you respond to that? 
repenting of your sins, confessing that faith, and then be baptized. If you're a child of God and you have not been standing with God's people, now it's time for you to come home. Please come as we stand and sing.